where we are in the climate emergency, we don't have a silver bullet. Uh, we need to be doing everything. Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always is someone who just uh, made another lap around the sun, and that is newly discovered comet C2014, but also Dr. (laughs) Kaylee Byers. Oh, that comet is so much more impressive. I've I've barely gone anywhere, but <laughs> thanks for lumping us together, Michael. <laughs> well, absolutely. Like both bright, both uh, with lots to look forward to in the future. So really excited to see what happens. And uh, you know what? I hope that that comet has a sunnier outlook for the future than I do. I'm constantly trying to rally my good vibes. And today we're going to be talking about the future. We're going to be talking about climate. We're going to be talking about economy. We're going to be trying to rally some of those good vibes. So um, today we're joined by Dr. Devyani Singh. And uh, Devyani is a postdoctoral economist fellow working on energy and climate policy at the Environmental Defense Fund. Hello, Devyani. How are you? I'm good. Hi, Kaylee and Michael. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's been a while this, you know, since I've seen your faces. Uh, last was, I don't even remember how many years ago now, in person when we still had the nerd night happening at the Fox Cabaret. I do miss that. I hope we can be back sometime. <laughs> I mean, this is like an update, you know, lots has changed in the last three, <laughs> three years. <laughs> and Diviani, you know, your, your work is sort of on this confluence of environment and economics. Maybe, you know, it sort of makes sense for us to bring those things together now. But where did you get started? Did you get started like really interested in one over the other? Or were you always excited about the two combined? Yeah, so I wasn't always interested in the economics part. I uh, grew up in the Indian Himalayas and, uh, you know, father was in the military, so we moved a lot. But the family home in the Himalayas was uh, really my only stable uh, kind of home growing up. And, you know, that's, I think, where I got my love for environment and nature. And, you know, back even in the 80s, I could see the impacts of climate change. So that's really what got me involved. So where economics comes in is, is sadly, in the 80s and 90s, uh, when you were in India, especially a woman, you didn't have a lot of choices open. Like I wanted to be a wildlife warden, kind of like a park ranger and things like Mm -hmm. that. And I don't think at that time that was an option being a woman in India. And so really it came down to those traditional three that all the Asian families talk about, doctor, engineer, or you get into business. Uh, Definitely didn't want to be a doctor. Well, I'm a different kind of doctor now, Mm -hmm. Uh, but didn't want to be a medical doctor. Uh, Didn't want to be an engineer. So I'm like, okay, you know what? I'll do business. I'll do finance. I'll make tons of money. And then I'm going to open up animal shelter homes and ENGOs and do what I want to do. So I think that's kind of how I got into the economics thing. I'm like, well, I have to be part of the rat race, which, you know, I don't know if I should, you know, say rat race, given your interest and research on rats. (laughs) But, uh, <laughs> you know, oh, bang on as part of the rat race and, uh, you know, uh, came to the U.S., did my MBA in finance, uh, started working in corporate America, and I was really just depressed. But it was more to do with I was uh, really not doing what I was passionate about, which was the environment. And so I quit. I went back, got a second master's and ended up at UBC, which brought me to Vancouver for my Ph.D. And here, my supervisor, he was an economist, a forest economist. And um, I had tried to forget over my second master's in environmental science, my relation to finance and economics. And he was like, you know, what if you can use it for good? I, because I was so anti it, because when I worked in corporate America, finance was all about making more money for another billion for a 
you know, a billionaire at the cost of environment and people. Yeah. At that point, like I was all new to me, this whole like, you know, um, carbon finance, environmental finance and environmental economics field. And he's like, here, you can actually use that same stuff. Like, why get rid of, like, why forget the years I put into get, developing those skills, but use them for the environment? And that's when I got into this environment and economics and, you know, now what I do, carbon finance or natural climate solutions, which we can talk about later. So that's really how it came. So, yeah, it started with really my love for the environment, ended up doing economics or finance, which are very similar, then ended up, you know, combining the two. Um, you know, later on. And now I'm an environmental economist. I love this whole thing. It is such a better origin story than any of the superheroes that we have. I mean, I have to admit, I don't really know any of the origin <laughs> stories, but I'm sure Michael does and he would concur with me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've worked at sort of this intersection for a while on a number of different projects. So can you tell us a little bit about what that work has looked like for you and sort of what has been like sort of what have you seen as sort of a success or what's been a real challenge of it? Yeah, so I'm extremely interdisciplinary. And um, like I joke that none of the uh, three or four chapters of my PhD were in the same discipline of science, uh, easily put. Mm -hmm. So the interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary part is the hard part. But uh, yeah, I've worked on, you know, kind of like forest sustainability work with uh, the First Nation, uh, the Newhawk Nation in Bella Coola in the Great Bay Rainforest. That was fun during the PhD I have done some work with uh, clean cooking access in the global south. I have done work on oil and gas emissions, methane emissions, and how to quantify them, detect them, uh, work on just transition and what that could look like. And now I'm working on natural climate solutions. Um, so, you know, it's very interesting because, you know, there's in all these different fields, we make progress in certain things like, you know, clean cooking access. We there's still like, you know, two, over 2 billion people in the world who don't have it, but it's like nobody is doubting that this is an access that's needed. And then there's, then you talk about a just transition where again, people agree that, you know, oil and gas emissions need to be reduced. And, you know, we talk about that and we need a just transition, but then you see the lack of political will to do anything about it. And so it's, um, I think it can be frustrating working in this science policy interface where you're literally doing science that informs policy and then you just don't see it get in like you know politicians like oh great you know science says this and that and you're like great they they read it they know what needs to be done and then you see them go by a pipeline you know like we did it here you declare a climate emergency and go by a pipeline you know it's just science and policy come across as conflicting sometimes i, I mean one of the the challenging things is and you're you know you're in this space right it's like politics isn't just based off of the science, right? There's so many other things that go into it. And so navigating that space of like what science informs and then like what economics informs and like what our social structures inform often ends up with something that looks a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about the clean cooking thing for folks who aren't familiar? Like what does that mean to have like a clean cooking environment? Yeah. And, you know, before, frankly, I grew up seeing people cook on an open fire, which is basically a fire, like when we go camping, right? And so for me, it was nothing until I really got into it. And, you know, it's the numbers are true, but like there's about 2.7 billion people globally that still cook on an open fire every day. And you can, you know, if you've been at a campfire and, you know, for one night, like you smell of smoke the rest of the day and you're in the open. Now imagine putting this fire in a little hut and being in there running this fire a few hours a day. Uh, it has major impacts on climate um, because of the emissions. It's actually, it's very inefficient, right? Like, uh, you know, in Vancouver, 
Uh, we see like, you know, when we have wildfire season, we can barely breathe. Imagine that year round inside that room. That's the PM 2.5 or the black carbon, the suit that uh, comes out that it has health impacts. Uh, I think it has like, I don't know the exact number now, but over 3 million people die globally because of cooking on, uh, because of indoor cooking on open fire. Uh, you know, it has like child mortality. It has impacts on women rights, women education, because it's usually women uh, in the global South. So global South is like developing countries like India. There's, you know, others in Asia, there's uh, countries in Africa, countries in Latin America. Uh, it's the women who go to collect wood and, you know, they go into the forest alone. It can be anywhere up to seven hours a day. Uh, that's when a lot of uh, attacks happen, animal and human attacks on them. Uh, you know, and then obviously forest sustainability. We might think that, you know, we, we are fighting all this clear cutting over here. But when you think about it, over 55% of all wood cut globally gets used for cooking. So it has major impacts. And so I was really, uh, you know, it was very interesting to work in this. And so what I worked with was eight villages in India. Four of them were up in the Himalayas and four were in a more semi-arid uh, plain area. And I really looked into, it was really interesting stuff because we were looking into, uh, you know, people say that you move people to cleaner cooking, which is we call like improved cook stoves. Now they could just be, they could still be biomass cook stoves or they could be, you know, things like LPG or um, electricity. And in the global South, Sally, uh, you know, we here we say move away from fossil fuel, but over there, the, the best thing they can do is get an LPG stove. Uh, it's 97% efficient. And given the fact that you have, you know, there's 2 billion people in the world who are energy poor when it comes to electricity, you know, so in India, the power cuts happen all the time. I get an electric stove, I won't be able to cook food half the day. So I was really looking at climate impacts of moving from cooking on what people could think of as renewable product, which is wood, moving to a fossil fuel product, which is LPG. And um, I mean, that paper is out and you can, you know, uh, if anyone wants to read it, it's the LPG uh, no, it's the environmental payoffs of LPG cooking in India, and it really shows the huge and major positive climate impacts it has to move from cooking on open fire and, and over to uh, LPG. But yes, that's some of the research I did. <laughs> Deviana, these stories um, are so fascinating to me. And your talk at Nerd Night, I think it was one of my favorites. And I kept thinking about it because it was thinking about these really big global problems in very tangible ways that we're looking at solutions because you're, you're right there in the thick of it creating policy. And so I'm curious, like what you're doing now with the Environmental Defense Fund and sort of what are those, what are those action items? And what are those policy items that you're really looking at now in your in your work these days? Yeah, so um, with the Environmental Defense Fund, I'm really leading a project and it's in collaboration and we are working with partners across different organizations, uh, you know, indigenous people, governments, NGOs, just everybody trying to uh, create a handbook and a briefing note series on crediting natural climate solutions. So natural climate solutions can be anything that either reduce the emissions or pull emissions out of the air. Like the simplest thing we all know is about like, you know, like Red Plus, what is the reduced emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, uh, which is basically not cutting our old growth in BC um, because, uh, or, uh, you know, replanting like afforestation and reforestation on already cut land. So for ease, I'll just stick to that example since people understand it. And, you know, uh, a lot of people call these offsets, which in a way, if you are buying it to offset your emissions, it is, but, I don't like that word because it's gotten a very negative idea, like, you know, people's uh, perception related to it. And a lot of it is fair because right now the, the credits, what we call a credit is 
one ton of carbon dioxide equivalent. Um, and so uh, that is one credit. And you know you can trade it like currency in a carbon market, like a financial market. So like let's say a credit is like a dollar that we are trading. But right now we don't have high integrity integrity credit. So what that means is a, a ton that we are selling or trading in the market might not be actually representing a ton in the of sequestered carbon, which creates issues. And <laughs> and you know sadly like a natural climate solution, not sadly like actually it's good. There will be a part of all the companies and countries uh, net zero goals. But what's sad part I was saying is that right now, if you look at all the climate commitments and net zero commitments using offsetting, um, I don't know who did that, but I saw a paper about it. It says that there's not enough land on this planet to grow that many trees. And this is why people are very skeptical about offsetting because, you know, people are like, oh, I'm just going to increase oil production like we want to do in Canada, according to our net zero plan. And then we'll offset it. Exactly where do you plan to offset it, first of all? You know, so there are initiatives like the science-based SBTI, tra science-based transition or whatever. Um, it's the SBTI, which kind of like says you have to reduce your emissions, and then what you can't reduce gets offset, right? Because we will, we can't have a zero emissions world. There will be emissions. We, you know, from agriculture, from other things, but we can reduce emissions from fossil fuel. We can reduce emissions from like I think 80 to 90 percent of the things we do. And that 10, 15% that we can't reduce is what needs to be offset, not 100%. And so what this handbook is dealing with is all these concerns people have brought up about the integrity. Uh, you know, what does an integrity mean? Like, is the one ton actually one ton? You know, what about how long is this? You know, if I grow a tree here, how long does that carbon stay in there? If you, if you cut it in 30 years, is it really permanent? If it stays for 100, then we could say permanence. Um, you know, what about, you know, so additionality, like, you know, what was this forest actually going to be cut? Like if I'm saying that, okay, I won't cut this tree, was it actually going to be cut? Or are you just claiming a credit? You were anyways going to protect it. So there's those integrity issues. Uh, there's issues of equity that a lot of people speak about, you know, let's put it this way. There's a coal plant and we all know coal plants and things like this are always in marginalized communities uh, where they create pollution and have health impacts. So let's say there's a coal plant in Vancouver let's say in kits, and kits is suffering pollution. And uh, this coal plant, to me, that's net zero gold, now buys offsets down in Colombia and grows trees there. So it has equity issues on both sides. Equity here, because technically that coal plant is now net zero, but the pollution and the health of the residents in kits did not improve, right? It has equity issues now in Colombia. Did you just take away another land from indigenous people and now say it's protected and you can't hunt and gather here or do whatever you've done for thousands of years. That's the supply side equity issues. So there's equity issues here too, right? And then there's like, do we have good markets to trade this? You know, and then where will the money come from? Who's going to put money? Will it be governments? Will it be individuals? Will it be corporations? How do we scale this finance for them to actually be a part uh, of a, a good, like a successful part? And so these are some of the issues and complexities we're, we're going to talk about in this briefing note series and the handbook uh, so that people who want to get into this space or anybody who wants to know anything can know exactly how to do it and what are these issues that they should be aware of as they create this. So trying to like, you know, address these concerns and make sure that it's a better place to actually mitigate climate change.
Yeah, I like how you used how you brought up a concern about using the word offsetting and how this handbook probably is, you know, creating a handbook for also the language. But you as a communicator, you're thinking about this language as well, because people have perceptions about it. Right. And, you know, another term that I think is being used and is a very hot issue right now is is carbon taxes right now, because we're looking at the gas prices. And in a lot of communities, especially in North America, they're talking about, you know, these carbon taxes and, you know, almost, you know, are they still working? Do we still need them? So, you know, I'd like to hear from you, you know, what's going on in that field right now with carbon taxes and that terminology? Is that still something and is it still working right now in 2022? Yeah. And I think, you know, first of all, with where we are in the climate emergency, we don't have a silver bullet. Uh, we need to be doing everything. We need to be doing natural climate solutions. We need to be doing carbon tax. We need to be doing cap and trades. We need to be doing everything we possibly can you know, uh, moving, electrifying everything, getting clean energy. So when it comes to the carbon tax, they should be and will be and are effective if the price is right. Right now, our prices are too low to create any change, right? And so what happens with um, a carbon tax is basically, you know, we've been in a way discounting and subsidizing oil and gas um, production for decades, where they are not paying the true price of pollution or, uh, you know, things like, damage, environmental damage, uh, health damage, what we call externalities in economics. And so externalities have not been priced in. Now, if you really did put a price on externalities, oil and gas would not be even half as cheap as it is now, even though solar is like the cheapest source right now, oil and gas would be unaffordable. And so what's happening is the public, us, we have been paying the externalities and subsidizing that externality price for oil and gas right now. And so carbon tax is one way of trying to price that pollution in economical and financial terms. But it has to be the right price. If we are only putting, let's say, you know, uh, like right now, I think in BC, we're up to 30 or 40 or even 50. I, I, I don't know the exact number right now in BC, um, let's say uh, dollars per ton. But uh, there's a lot of models that have shown that the price to actually be effective, um, it should be 100 or more because that's the true price of pollution, right? Um, although in BC, when we did enact the carbon tax, it has shown a reduction in uh, transportation pollution. Uh, we, we have research out there, and I think even on the government website, it's there. So it has shown, and then, you know, when BC had introduced it as the first province in Canada, all the other provinces were like, oh, the economy in BC will suffer. But actually, the BC economy, since the introduction of the carbon tax, has not suffered at all. If anything, it did improve, and our emissions went down. So in BC itself, we can say that it's working, but you know, a federal $10 tax, I cannot say it's going to be very effective because $10 per ton is nothing, right? It's not the true price of pollution. We need to be paying, like not we, basically oil and gas producers should be paying that price. It shouldn't be the, and, and it shouldn't be the people and it shouldn't be the public because we've been footing that price for way too long. Yeah, so we do need carbon tax. We need a lot of other things if we really wanna deal with this climate emergency in and turn it around in the next decade or so. That's definitely one of the concerns I have, and you've sort of touched on this earlier, is that we we seem to, you know, be worried about enough about climate change, but we put all of our climate eggs in one melting basket and sort of focus on, yeah, one or two things like the idea that carbon capture technology is just gonna solve solve all the problems, right? And so this gets into the policies and, and what's actually done. And, you know, in 2020, 
you ran in the BC provincial election for the Green Party. And in 2021, you ran in the federal election. And now you'll be running for city council this year. And can you take us on a little bit of that journey for you? Like some nerdy stuff that got you moving from the, the climate and economy space into this like policies and practice space that you're now in? Yeah. So, you know, like I've been doing a lot of, like you said, um, science for policy. And so really working on those policy questions and trying to answer them and, you know, so that policy can be more effective or we can have evidence-based decision-making. And uh, my first taste of it was when I was telling you about the paper that was published, uh, we actually worked with the um, petroleum minister in India to look at the climate impacts of this like big LPG uh, push, like access push they'd done in India where they got uh, clean cooking access, which is like basically an LPG connection to 80 million households in two or three years. That's like twice the population of Canada in two to three years, they managed to get them LPG cooking access. Um, and so uh, that was really cool when I published this paper and like actually a government official and it, it directly impacted policy. And they wanted to know what were the climate impacts because I created this model and they gave me all the information and we ran that. So that was very interesting. And I really wanted to continue doing a lot of that work. And so, you know, when we were talking earlier and we were saying that, you know, you do the science and then I said that, you know, and then there's the policy and there's a disconnect and, you know, there's so many external forces when you make the policy, like, you know, social and other, um, you know, corporate interests that come in. Uh, but I also think as scientists, we've not done a very good job, right? Like we end up publishing in these academic journals full of jargon where you and I as scientists, we, I mean, I frankly don't love reading them either. They're very boring and <laughs> annoying and we do it because we have to. Uh, we really don't communicate well. Yeah. Uh, and so it is part of our job too as scientists, I feel, that if we have a policy relevant scientific research and answers to get communicated to policymakers, we don't have scientists. And, and as our MLAs or MPs are on city council, right? How do you expect them to be able to sit and read thousands of scientific papers and come out with five points that's the best available science on that issue? That's our job as scientists because we understand that and we need to do better at communicating. And so I got into a lot of like trying to get this across, writing policy briefs, trying to speak with politicians. And as part of that, I emailed uh, the Liberals, NDP, and the Greens, uh, when I was doing my PhD, that, you know, I wanted to help them on policy stuff, if they wanted any climate policy, energy policy help. As a scientist, I was offering my help to, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm not partisan, although to run, you have to choose a party, but I wasn't partisan because at the end, I want evidence-based decision-making, but neither of the parties except the Greens replied. The Greens got in touch and said, oh, uh, it was interesting because Elizabeth May was writing a letter to the federal government on some uh, on the Saskatchewan methane emissions uh, equivalence. And she's like, you said you're an expert on this. Can you help me on this? And I was like, wow, there's like an elected MP in this party that really cares about what my scientific expertise has to say. It was in 2020. I actually only got my citizenship in uh, March 2020, literally the week where the world shut down. I came, I it took my I went for my citizenship oath and, uh, and that weekend, the whole world shut down. I was like, wow, that's what happens when you become a Canadian citizen. N equals one. Uh, <laughs> it seems to be the trend. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. N equals one. That is it, right? We know that's the scientific evidence we need. <laughs> but yeah, and so they, so it was sometime in March, uh, I got like the BC Green campaign, whatever field team person or whatever the title is, the campaign person email saying, you know, have you ever thought about running for office? Like, you know, just going through your resume and how interested you are in seeing science and policy 
you know, as Greens, we love evidence-based decision-making and we would love to have you. And I was like, you know what? I just became a citizen. Um, I haven't even thought about this. You know, I'll think about it, but right now I just want to do science. And then the snap election gets called and they call and they're like, well, you have 24 hours. Uh, we need to select candidates. Do you want to run? I was like, you know, we need more science in politics. And I was frustrated with government. I wouldn't even say inaction because they take action to make people think they've done something, but it's so little that it was, it would have been better if you didn't take action. So you can't even say inaction. Um, but you know, I'm just playing politics. And then I ran because I wanted to see climate action and that's kind of got what got me involved. And once I got into it, it became more than science. It became about representation. I had South Asian women message me and tell me that for the first time we felt represented in politics. Thank you for running. I had professors at UBC email me and say, I know you'll do the right thing. Thanks for giving us hope in politics again. I had people on the street tell me, you know, like we've given up on politics. Thank you for running. You know, you've, you've given us hope again because I'm not here to play political games. I want to get things down. I want like it's an emergency. I, by the way, on a science tangent, could not watch. Don't look up. I saw it and I was just screaming in frustration because I'm like, oh, my God, that's me. That's literally how I feel. <laughs> I didn't I didn't find it to be a fun romp, to be honest. Like I, I thought it was well done, but the whole time I sat there and I was just like, this is too real. I can't even laugh. I know there are jokes. I, I was angry. I was couldn't I even not laugh. I was just angry. So that's what got me into politics. And then uh, on election day, like we actually did really well in the provincial election. We hasn't because my team, you know, was amazing. It was my friends who I recruited to help me and uh we got eight, almost 18% of the vote, which is the highest of any green candidate in this riding in a three-week election where we literally had $1,000 to spend. And I'm pretty sure my opponent spent thousands and thousands of dollars. And so in a one, like, you know, a three-week campaign with no money and no volunteers, I think we did pretty good. And that's when it was on election night. It was with May message me. And I was like, oh, wow, like she's messaging me. She's like, you know, I'd like to see you run federally next. And I was like, well, I never thought about that. But so it was like, it happened like that. Then I never taught city. And then I had Adrian Carr, who I really respect and the work she's been doing. And I got to know her during my federal campaign because she and Elizabeth May were close. And so Elizabeth and Adrian did a campaign launch uh, event for me here. And she's like, and that's when I came to know, like, you know, at the municipal level, the real work you can do that you can see in the city. I can tackle actual issues. And like, you know, before we started recording, I was saying like, you know, as an MLA, I'm a one voice in some 80. As an MP, I am one voice in like 300 and something, but as city councilor, I'm one voice in 10. And if you actually look at our city council right now, there is no diversity and we need renters who, as I bet you know, as grad students, we are paying 100% of our stipend in rent. That's not affordable. Unless people have lived like that, they don't understand they, when they're there making decisions, what it really feels like to be in that person's position. So that's kind of what got me involved. So now it's like, it's science, but it's also like now not it's just not climate science anymore. Now it's like evidence based based decision making across the board. It's just that someone's got to do it, right? Yeah, wonderful. Well, Diviana, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to answer our questions. Uh, there's more questions coming at you from some more of your constituents. Uh, would you like to hear from the nerd herd? Sure. Yes. Why is the sky? What's at the center of a black hole? When we evolve, does anyone have free will? What is like carbon based? The fastest thing on earth. Why do we keep it? It's time for listener questions. 
If you want to get on the Nerd Herd questions, we post for them on our social media at Nerd Night YVR. We got a two-parter here for you, Dave Yanni. Uh, the first one from Tara. Uh, do you have any advice for scientists considering running in future elections? Yeah, um, I think the advice is just get into it. I mean, you know, we get so comfortable not being in the public eye as scientists. And I think a lot of people become scientists because they don't want to deal with people. But I think, you know, we just have to we just have to jump in. And um, I can understand that if you want like an academic, like a traditional like tenure track position, it might be hard to be the front of politics because I don't know, people say that you're biased, but frankly, like, you know, what's the bias when you want to make this a planet that's worth living? Like that's livable for future generations. I don't see any bias there. Also, who isn't? (laughs) Everybody brings their biases to science. Everybody has biases. The most important thing is to recognize them and like be able to think through them and make sure that they don't like impact your decisions in a, in a negative way or in an inequitable way and all that kind of stuff. Right. Exactly. You know, it's like my research and my scientific results have nothing to do with my politics. Right. Like my opinions and biases are not in my research. That is facts and results. It's devoid of that. But there is a, like you said, inherent bias. If you didn't like rats, you wouldn't have spent years studying them. If I didn't like climate, I wouldn't have spent years studying it. If uh, my partner doesn't like brains, she wouldn't become a neuroscientist, right? So that's the thing. There's an inherent bias why we choose the field of science we do. So the moment scientists say, I'm unbiased, you're lying to yourself. And like you said, Kayla, like if you don't um, acknowledge that bias, then it might, then you aren't able to keep it separate from your science. Mm-hmm. So in fact, acknowledging your bias is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I would say if you don't want to be the forefront because there's a lot of trolls out there, especially if you're somebody who stands out like me, who's pretty much, I check off almost every uh, equity seeking group out there. Um, you have a lot of trolls coming after you. Uh, and so, but because I've faced so much racism, homophobia and sexism in my life, it actually, I've become, I wouldn't say immune. It doesn't bother me as much anymore. Um, mm. So I've become thick skinned and which isn't a, which is good to be in politics, but at the same time, it's not good that why did I have to actually deal with all of that to make me who I am today? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So that it is there. That is something we have to uh, you have to be aware of. Uh, you have to be aware. People will be like, but you're a scientist. Do your science. Uh, why you care about politics? But I say, like, reach out. And if you don't want to run, um, reach out to your local MPs, reach out to your local MLAs, set up meetings and ask them, you know, bring up the promises they made during elections and ask them where they are on those promises and uh, how, what's the timeline to follow through. And they have to meet you. You're the one, they're your representative. You're the constituent. So email them, you know, uh, get in touch. It doesn't matter what party. They made you promises, make sure they deliver on them. And if there are things you didn't like, then uh, set up a meeting and speak to them about this is the science. You know, call them, email them. And basically, if they think they're being harassed, well, they shouldn't feel that. They are, they are your voice in government. They should be listening to you. And if they're not, well, then you know who not to vote for next time. They are, you are their constituent, and they are your representative first. Once elected, they shouldn't be NDP or a liberal or a conservative or a green. Once elected, they are the MLA or MP for that constituency, and they should be putting partisan politics aside. Um, okay, follow-up question. What should BC do, or anywhere, but we're in BC, uh, to encourage more scientists to get involved? Yeah, I think this is more, I mean, there's two things, right? There's the government, um, where we should be hiring more scientists on staff. Like, I really think we need a 
um, you know, like a chief scientist of BC position. Like we have a public health officer, we need like a chief scientist, like who's, you know, looking at the best available science and translating that science for government. But those are like proper jobs, right? Like we should have more scientists uh, positions coming up in government. And when we're talking about pol political, I think all parties need to make it a space where scientists feel welcome and heard, you know, and that their science will be listened to. Um, so like I can say personally for the Greens, uh, at the federal level, we have a shadow cabinet, <clears throat> which we have a lot of scientists on, uh, apply to be there. I know the BC Greens, Sonia and Adam, uh, they're all, they're very evidence-based. Uh, the BC Greens now have what they call knowledge clusters, where if you want to like give your expertise on, um, or not knowledge clusters, we have like these, uh, we'll be coming up with, where you can inform, help part of, be part of some policy decisions or formulating policies. So like, I would say just reach out to the parties and I would say reach out to all the parties or, you know, the few that you care about um, and just say that you want to be involved in, you know, and, and say what your expertise is. Uh, but I think at the same time, the parties have to open that channel. And like I said, I I reached out to all and only the Greens got back to me. But so I think there's a lot that politicians themselves have to do is listening to experts, right? Like the hard part is being a politician, people expect you to be an expert on everything, but you're not like, you know, when elected to office, I am an, I am an expert on climate and energy policy, but I'm not an expert on other issues that face the city or my constituency. But I do know that how to reach out to experts and get their opinions. And so I think that's what government officials and politicians should be doing is actually keeping that channel of opening that communication channel where scientists can actually feel comfortable to reach out and tell them that, you know, based on my science or the best available science, these are the top five things that we think you should do to tackle X, Y, Z issue. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much, Daviani. This has been an amazing conversation. Do you have time to uh, nerd out some more with us? Yeah, sure. What you nerding about? What you nerding about? All right. If you want to get in on the nerd outs, we also post for them. You can contact us on our socials at NerdNightYVR. Daviana, you do so much. You're a scientist. You are out there running for elections. What else have you been nerding out about? Well, I don't know if I'm nerding out, but it's what takes when I'm not a scientist by day and a politician by night and weekends, uh, every bit of time. Well, actually, it overlaps on all these things is my puppy Zephyrus. Well, I mean, he's 14 months oh. old now. Uh, so I'm really, if you say nerding out about just hanging out with him. Uh, he's quite, he's a husky Australian shepherd mix. He's quite an adorable guy. I can't say little anymore. He's become 70 pounds and he is bigger than any of his own siblings and potentially his own parents at this point. So I don't know what's happening there. Um, but he has his own Instagram. So if anyone wants to follow him, he's, uh, he's West Coast Panda boy, but boy with a BOI because he can't, you know, gender neutral, gotta Obviously. be like, he can't tell me what he, what he identifies as. You know, I shouldn't even say he, but you know, Zephyrus, we'll say Zephyrus. Um, very friendly, uh, sweetheart. Um, and yeah, uh, great campaign buddy. I, I literally joke about how he probably gets more votes than I do because I walk down the street with him. Half of my campaigning during the federal election was done at dog parks. <laughs> so I got most of my volunteers recruited at the dog parks too. So he's a great campaign buddy. And then I got him this little backpack that I put like my election, election pamphlets in and then went door to door giving those so he's got to earn his keep right he can't just uh, live in the house for free he's gotta he's gotta work so 
he's he's doing what he can with his really cute, adorable face of walking the streets and dropping off leaflets. But how how is he at listening to the people? <laughs> is he also good at listening to the people? He is a very happy puppy. So if you ignore him, he will try to jump on you and bark at you to play with him. But if you pet him, he will sit there very happily with his tongue out with this goofy face and wagging tail. So he's actually very good with people and dogs. Well, you know what? That sounds almost exactly like how Michael will behave when you when you treat Michael poorly or, or well. <laughs> Michael, what about you? What have you been nerding out about lately? Well, I mean, you can treat me well by taking me to a movie because uh, that's where my love stems from. Like as a young child, I just loved going to the cinema, which is something I've sorely been missing you know, this past couple of years. Uh, and I saw a movie recently, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Have either of you seen this movie? No, but I've been hearing about it and I really want to watch it. Yeah, go see it in the theater. I went to the fancy theater in Park Royal, like reclining seats, like with a footrest, two beers beside me. Like, I, I'm in absolute heaven here. <laughs> it's such great cinema. It's like sci-fi, kung fu action, a little bit of Marvel superhero. But it's all centered around like a basic drama of a Chinese immigrant family. Uh, Michelle Yao is the main actor. It is so incredible. There's so much in this movie. It's really so chaotic. But basically, the main themes is that it explores the multiverse, which is a very very big science concepts. And I love how when art can take these big science concepts and just explore them a little bit. And, you know, I've found recently in a lot of art that this big science concept, which is a real concept, the multiverse, um, is being explored in art a lot. And so just to clarify, when you hear like the words like this, the multiverse, there is actually two things, two very distinct things. So there's one in cosmology, when they say multiverse, they mean the physical place in the universe beyond our perception where another universe has been created. So we are in one universe elsewhere where we can't see there might be another universe. So that's one way to think of the multiverse. But another more popular way that's being explored, which is more of the quantum uh, physics way of explaining it, which is the many worlds interpretation, which is that every time that you make a decision, a new branch of the universe is created that creates another subset of the universe. So there's just constantly wow. new branches of, of, of things that are being observed that you can observe, you know, in physics that this is possible that like, you know, a proton goes this way, a proton goes this way. Well, in the many worlds, it's gone in both directions. We can only observe one of them, but theoretically it also went in that other direction as well. So that's the themes that I think a lot of stories have, have thought about that all interpretations are out there. And, you know, I find this so wonderful and science is like this process of understanding the world and art helps us understand the emotions of that understanding. And so after the movie, I've been reading and listening to discussions on the themes. And I think this concept of the multiverse feels very real right now. Because for me, I've had a lot of time to think, to dream, uh, maybe less so these days. But collectively, I think a lot of us have had time to think about those things that were not or that maybe could be, maybe things we've lost, maybe things of, you know, maybe we could do this. You hear a lot of people changing careers because now they have time to think about these new places of um, that those branches could go into, right? And so emotionally, there's a couple ways to unpack this. There, this is, and this is where philosophy comes in, uh, in that every possibility is real. Every possible outcome is realized in the infinite multiverse. Now, 
if that makes you feel sort of like nihilistic, like any decision you make doesn't matter, you know, that's a real emotion that I think is valid to bring into this because everything does matter, but it's the indecision that doesn't matter. And so for me, that's a very tangible way of thinking about it that makes me like really excited that, you know, even if something doesn't happen for me, it did happen somewhere and I can mourn for it, but I can also be really excited for it as well. So if I am going to mourn for something that didn't happen, I should also be really excited that there's the possibility that it could have happened as well. So in one of those worlds, we've dealt with climate emergency. (laughs) Which decision do you think it was? Do you think like one sloth (laughs) went the wrong way and fell off a cliff and then there was no climate change? I think we didn't discover oil and gas. (laughs) Industrial revolution never happened. No, no. We do like where we are. Because this is because even like this big problem of climate change, it's emotional, right? And we think about what the world could be like. And it's really kind of like the anxiety, I think, is in that in-between zone. So really what you want to be is in that sweet spot of whatever place we are in is the universe that we are in. There's no reason to really get anxiety about that. Um you just take the action that you're going to take. You're going to take that branch and you're going to go and follow that branch and see where it leads. And, you know, for me, I think like the universe is chaotic. Like that process that I've just described, it's chaotic, right? But in the end, when you kind of think about all of it, it brings me comfort. Um, So, you know, the moral of the movie is like the universe is chaotic, but just be kind to others in that process. And most of all, you know, be kind to yourself in that process because it's, uh, it's a long road and um, there's many different possibilities to think about. So um, that's what I've been thinking about uh, and nerding about. Uh, Kaylee, um, any existential crises uh, for you to think about in the multiverse? <laughs> Constantly. <laughs> well, one thing that you talked about there was sort of this dealing with anxiety and actually I had, I, I'm going to talk on a few things quickly because uh, Daviani was talking a lot about climate change, and I wanted to share a book that I really liked. I read it this year um, by Kimberly Nicholas, Dr. Kimberly Nicholas, called Under the Sky We Make, How to Be Human in a Warming World. And it it's really beautifully written, and it talks about some of these bigger sort of existential crises, like what changes am I going to make in my life? What does this mean for me? Uh, flight is a big part of it. She tackles this question about like deciding to have children or not and like how people wrestle with those ideas. And really, I think it's a beautiful look at taking this broader anxiety that many of us are feeling and really bringing it down into like, what does that mean for me on the day to day? And how does that that impact my decision? So I'm going to put that in the group chat. And that phrase, I'm going to put that in the group chat, I stole from one of my favorite podcasts uh, called Pop Chat. (laughs) That's my next thing I'm recommending, Pop Chat, Canadian podcast hosted by uh, Elamine Abdul-Mahmoud, which is like a pop culture podcast. I know nothing about pop culture and it is so delightful. It's the only way I stay current on anything. And so highly recommend. Mm. And uh, my last thing on this roundtable of uh, nerd outs, I am doing a new podcast. So I'm excited to hype that. It's called Nice Genes, Mm. and it's sponsored by Genome British Columbia. It's all about genomics and how it intersects with our lives and different aspects of genomics. And that's going to be coming out in the summer. So yeah, I'm really excited about it. I hope it'll 
I think it's a lot of fun and I'm really excited to see it come into the world. That sounds cool. In this universe. I guess it won't in another one. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So you celebrate, you know, the universe that it is in. Good job, this universe. Devyani, thank you so much for joining us on this here uh, podcast. Uh, where can people find you, uh, read all about the things that you're doing um, and uh, on social media as well so they can contact their local politician? Yeah, uh, for sure. Please feel free to reach out on Twitter. It's at uh, Kumari, K-U-M-A-R-I underscore Devyani, D-E-V-Y-A-N-I. My Instagram is the same, but really it's Twitter. Um, that's I use more. Um, And so, yeah, feel free to reach out anytime, be it about politics, be it about science, um, you know, and uh, if there's anything I can do uh, to help out, you know, that's what I'm here for, trying to do a little bit. (laughs) Amazing. Well, everybody, go get in Divyani's DMs and ask all those science policy questions. Thank you everyone so much for listening. If you want to hear more from us, you can follow us on our socials at NerdNightYVR on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This episode was hosted by us, surprise, and probably also edited by us, surprise, Michael, and uh, mixed by Elise Lane. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until we meet again, make like Daviani and Paula seize the day. <laughs> <laughs>